Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right, we have been talking about America's energy opportunity for several weeks, so we're going to switch topics. No, we're not. We're going to talk about it more because we keep having more smart guests recruited by our team at Center for Industrial Progress, whether it's Nikki Norris or Stefan Hen. I, Henna, I don't usually like to pronounce his name in the technically correct way because, you know, why not? But I'm being generous to him today. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, Nikki and Stefan has been, have been getting us all these great guests. I guess I should give them credit because we've been going every week, and part of that is they keep finding new guests and keep reminding me, and thus and keep scheduling it, and so we keep getting this great content. So I've been get, getting a lot of really good feedback lately, which I appreciate, and so uh, thanks to the whole team at Center for Industrial Progress for making that happen, as well as our guests. All right, we are going to have on the show this week Stephen Hayward. So Steve, Stephen Hayward, uh, and Steve is known, I think among all academics as just this very impressive intellectual specimen because he just knows so much about so many different things. He's, he's been, a, he has in-depth knowledge in a lot of fields, uh, which is rare. Usually I find that people who, who dabble in too many fields or who dabble, period, are, are pretty superficial, and yet, certainly talking to Steve about energy, he is the opposite of superficial. He knows a ton of stuff. I always learn from him, and I think you will too, so let's be joined by Steve Hayward on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined again by Dr. Stephen Hayward, Ronald Reagan Distinguished Professor at the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Steve, welcome back to Power Hour. Oh, hi, Alex. This will be fun. All right. Well, we, we both agree, so we can't, we can't go wrong. All right. <laughs> so as I told you before the show, as I've told the listeners over the last several shows, I'm interested right now in America's energy opportunity. I think we have an unbelievable opportunity to liberate our energy economy, become an energy leader in the world. And I also think that many of the policies on the table, whether we're talking about Paris coming up this year or the, the policies of many of the presidential candidates, uh, Democrat in particular, but also Republican, uh, are horrific and would deny us a lot of opportunity to also make things work. So let's talk about that. Steve, for you, how do you think of America's energy opportunity? What, what excites you? Uh, well, you know, it's obviously huge and has been for a long time. And what really changed things, as you know, was the revolution in technology for conventional energy, meaning oil and gas, but also coal a little bit over the last decade. You know, it all happened without Washington even knowing about it, right? The whole fracking revolution for natural gas and the directional drilling that went with it. Uh, and if Washington had got any wind that this was going on, they surely would have done something to try to stop it, right? Uh, and most of this, of course, as you also know, has been happening on private land, or on some of the older government leases that are still, uh, uh, you know, outstanding. And, you know, we, we've done two things. We've opened up huge new areas, especially the, the Bakken in North Dakota, uh, but also the, you know, expanded production in the Permian Basin and elsewhere in Texas. Uh, 
but also in Colorado, Wyoming, and some other places. And, you know, there's this huge potential to do more of that. We're still locking up lots of reserves of oil and gas on, on public land. Uh, we're still locking up lots of uh, potential reserves of oil and gas offshore. Uh, and, of course, they've been so successful, the, the oil and gas industry, that you now have um, not quite a glut, but you've seen what's happened to prices, right? They've fallen by half. And uh, I think prices are going to stay down for a while and put a lot of pressure on the Middle East and on uh, our friends, so to speak, in Russia. And that's all a good thing. But eventually we'll come out of this cycle and we're going to want to expand the success we've had, I think. All right. All of those are, are really important issues. I, I want to start out with an aspect of that uh, that we haven't really discussed on the show, but I think is really crucial, which is the aspect of Russia. In terms of just the current situation and the, the situation over the last decade, at least, could you just describe to us the, Ru- the power Russia has, particularly over Europe, and how that relates to energy? Oh, sure. Uh, well, Russia's got... Uh several things that should be understood. One is uh, they're, uh, along with us and Saudi Arabia, one of the top three oil and gas producers in the world, and a lot of that is for export. Uh, The second thing to know is that although oil is traded on a global market and pretty much a uniform price, natural gas is not really traded on a global market, and you have a lot of regional variation. So while natural gas has gotten very cheap here in the United States, it's still very expensive in Europe. Uh, because Russia is uh, not exactly in a monopoly position, but they're one of the stronger players. They've also been trying to strong-arm Eastern Europe over pipelines and distribution facilities and refineries, and uh, that's been an interesting uh, uh, subject to watch. The third thing, of course, is that, as you might suspect, the in- the energy industry in Russia is very much a crony capitalist phenomenon. Uh, you know, you fr- It turns out that their production costs are way out of line with what a competitive industry like you have here in the U.S. Uh, has. Uh, it all the companies are loaded with uh, cro- uh, Putin's cronies, and he no doubt skims a lot of money off the revenue stream. Uh, and so, you know, if Gazprom, you can actually buy stock in Gazprom. It's traded over here in the United States, uh, but their numbers don't match up to say Chevron or Exxon Mobil or other companies, uh, which makes it a very dodgy investment if you're an investor. Uh, it's still profitable, but when you look at uh, all the corruption that goes on, it makes you wonder uh, about whether they can sustain. Um, uh, uh, the low oil prices of the current market, or whether they're going to get pinched and have to reform. So to follow up on this issue of Russia, what's the worst case scenario that that could happen? So let's say that we don't export any LNG, Europe doesn't engage in any shale energy technology. Uh, in terms of the production end of things, the U.S. and Europe do as little as possible. Uh, and let's say Russia is as bad as we might expect. What I mean, what could what could happen in the next four or five years? Well, I don't know if there's really a worst case scenario. I mean, well, I, I mean, an absolute worst case scenario in a blue sky sense would be if Russia were to cut off gas shipments to uh, oil and gas shipments to Europe. Uh, they have fiddled around with gas shipments a couple times the last few years in their disputes with Ukraine and so forth. On the other hand, that's where Russia gets so much of its revenue, and so they'd be cutting off their own nose to spite their face if they did that. But you never know; uh, things could get uh, uh, you know really scary for them, or Putin could go crazy, crazier than he already is, and so he might try something goofy like that. Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I guess the other pro- possibility would be that Putin just uh, knuckles down and says, uh, "We'll we'll put up with low prices and low revenue." But we'll, we'll cut our prices so that um, especially countries like Poland, 
don't and Bulgaria don't develop their own gas and oil resources. You know, one thing I've learned a lot about is that uh, there's a lot of gas in Bulgaria. And the geology, I think, is very favorable for the same kind of fracking that we've used in Pennsylvania and uh, and and other places like that. Uh, but the uh, the Russia, I almost called them the Soviet Union. There, Russia has been funding a lot of environmentalists in Bulgaria and has succeeded in getting the Bulgarian government to impose a moratorium on natural gas fracking exploration in the country. That's entirely to try and keep the market captive, and it's been quite remarkable that Russia's gotten away with this, but they have so far. I've heard that they've also done this in the U.S. Have you heard anything about that in terms of funding anti-development groups? Yeah, I've heard that, but I haven't actually seen any evidence, so I don't know how true it is. It wouldn't surprise me at all. It, you know, I mean, Putin was in the KGB back when the KGB used to fund the peacenik groups in Europe and the United States. So it's quite plausible they might try that. Uh, and and what's your knowledge of the the situation with Mideast countries doing similar things in the U.S.? Like you've heard reports about different countries funding anti-fracking groups here. Well, there was that movie with Matt Damon a couple years ago. I forgot the name of it now, but it was Promise an anti-fracking Land. movie. Promise Land. Promise That's the one, Promise Land, right. Well, that was partially funded by, I forget which Middle Eastern country, which I thought was pretty amusing. Um and as you, you may remember the story, they had to change the ending because it was so factually wrong that even a Hollywood studio realized they couldn't get away with it. I'm, I, I vaguely remember that. Uh, I, I wrote, anyone who wants to see, well, we can put a link to this uh, in our show notes. I wrote a uh, review, so to speak, of that on Master Resource. It was, it was not a favorable review in case anyone, uh, I'll give that spoiler of the, of the, the direction of the review. <laughs> so, right. yeah, this this issue of of these countries so i guess i guess you have the situation with it's interesting with the situation of will russia cut its nose despite its face because well that that relates to the current situation with saudi arabia with the so what's what's going on with saudi arabia in terms of trying to affect oil prices and how is that hurting certain people here but how is that also hurting saudi arabia given how dependent they are on oil revenue yeah, you know, it's it's hard to know about those guys, right? Uh, uh, they so far want to keep production up. They don't want to cut production to raise prices. And it's not clear uh, what the reasons are. I mean, one of the reasons that you hear is that they want to put the squeeze on Iran. Low oil prices will hurt Iran, especially with the embargo lifting as a result of the uh, the arms deal that Obama has made. Uh, there's also the thought that they need the revenue desperately, even at lower oil prices, and that if they cut production, uh, they will lose too much revenue before prices go up, and that's basic price theory. Uh, the third one is is that they want to maintain their dominance of OPEC, and one way to do that is also to keep prices low for everybody. Uh, and so, you know, but you do hear, finally, I'll just say this, uh, you do hear rumors that their own budget is going to be under some pressure if oil prices stay low more than, say, two or three years. Uh, they've got a lot of cash reserves, but at some point they're going to run out of those. And then they're going to need high oil prices again. I mean, has, so uh, in terms of the people of Saudi Arabia, have they experienced any adverse consequences to date, or are they just uh, are they just being fed or whatever through the the coffers? You know, that's another great question. It's not exactly a transparent country, <laughs> right? And I don't think we really know what goes on uh, outside of the uh, you know a couple of square miles in Riyadh where the American expat community hangs out. Yeah, not transparent. I don't think a lot of our dealings with them are transparent uh, in terms of just 
I don't know, I've heard just stories about, you know, different diplomats getting, I, well, I don't know, I'm curious to your knowledge, is this true, that I think it's the ambas ambassadors to Saudi Arabia get some sort of lifetime financial benefit? You know, I haven't heard that, but, you know, I and I would think there'd be some legal problems with that, at least for American ambassadors there would. I don't know about other countries. Um, uh, you know, I, I've been asking some experts about this lately and say, you know, it's this kind of crazy to call the Saudis our friends, right? Our friends, the Saudis, is the cliche you hear in Washington. And most people say, oh, that's quite correct. Uh, we should think of them as partners in the same way that mafia families will be in partnership with one another. They are our partners for some of these geopolitical strategic issues related to terrorism in Iran, uh, but otherwise they're uh, they're not our friends in any sense at all. I mean, do your partners really fund the ideology and training of people who want to kill you? Yeah, precisely. That's the problem in a nutshell. Well, also, yeah. I mean, the the well, this is a whole subject that I, I taught a course on once, but just the whole history of this is. You know, America, American and British countries taking a completely destitute nation that couldn't even find water on its own, let alone oil, making it incredibly prosperous, and then got paid back by having it stolen through uh, nationalization. So, right. I mean, <laughs> to call it a friend, or even even that, just everybody treats the royal family as just some sort of uh, august or admirable entity that is in any way comparable to, say, a company that earned its way to prosperity versus stole its way to prosperity is just so... I mean, you think about it, like, so, the Saudi producers literally are treated better by the American left than uh, American producers. Oh, that's quite right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, there, there's so many perverse uh, uh, and hypocritical elements in that whole story that I don't know where to begin or end. Okay, well, let's let's go back to the the domestic story. So, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the future, and we you talked in general about what's exciting. But in terms of domestic uh, domestic rather developments so far, what has most excited you in terms of the benefits that America that have been conferred on Americans because of this amazing energy revolution? Well, I, gosh, I, you know, it's hard to pick out what's most fun about this. Uh, you know, the liberals have been saying for years, oh, we can't drill our way to energy independence, <laughs> right? And well, guess what? We did when they weren't looking, right? Uh, and uh, so, you know, in addition to uh, falsifying that that um, convenient narrative of uh, the left for so long, uh, and, you know, and, and obviously lowering prices and delivering us a large measure of energy independence, the, the technological revolution that's been behind all this has been really extraordinary. And Maybe just the beginning. You know, I, I went a couple of years ago to the Offshore Technology Conference in Houston, which is sort of Woodstock for the oil and gas industry. Have you ever been to that thing, Alex? I, I have Any chance? Yeah, you should try and go some year. I mean, it's Woodstock for oil and gas, and it's kind of a misnamed, and it's called Offshore Technology Conference, but really it's everything. It's 60,000 people from around the world descend upon Houston in uh, early May, I think is when they hold it. And they have a big trade show, right? And that the trade show has gotten so big that they fill three of the covered stadiums there down near where the old Astrodome is. And you walk through the thing, and you see you know, giant things like uh, three-story blowout preventers for offshore drilling. But you also see tiny little gizmos uh, that, you know, that go behind the drill bits for directional drilling and everything in between from soup to nuts. And what you realize is, as you walk through these enormous cavernous um, uh, conventions halls, is that's where energy innovation is taking place. I think you could take every single green energy fair in the country, 
put them all together, and they will be swallowed by one little corner of what you see at the offshore technology conference. And, you know, all you ever read about in the mainstream media is, you know, oh, a new solar panel, you know, a new windmill, some new fossil fuel or biofuel, sorry, a biofuel gizmo. And you realize where the real action is, is an old fashioned um, uh, hydrocarbon energy. Okay. Well, I have a couple more questions about the, the domestic excitement and, and some elements I'm excited about that I want to hear your take on. But now that you've mentioned this ridiculous faux enthusiasm for the progress of what are properly called the unreliables, that is solar and wind, uh, in <laughs> and versus the the amazing evolution of hydrocarbons, uh, you know, which, I mean, old-fashioned is, is the last word that should be used for, you know, I mean, the whole technology right. from the beginning is amazing that you can turn goo into, you know, plastic bottles and, and uh, the fuel for an airplane. The idea that, well, that's not imp impressive, but it's really impressive to get some wind, uh, you know, to turn a shaft. That, that doesn't <laughs> excite me. That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but uh, since, since we have you here and since you're basically all-knowing, I want to hear your response to the typical thing that comes up. I was at a conference this weekend of entrepreneurs, and this came up repeatedly. They say, well, solar is... Uh, what there's a there's a, a guy who invented the X Prize named Peter Diamandis and he's coined this term which I think is a, a messy term exponential technology and I'll say well solar is becoming cheaper exponentially so it's going to reach grid parity now leave, leaving aside the well actually I'll, I'll just leave it at that so what what is the actual situation because people have this idea well solar is just plummeting and it's just going to be way cheaper than everything else and we don't even need these subsidies, and so, but oil and coal and gas are certainly replaceable or will be within the next couple of years, given this amazing industry and its contribution to civilization. I don't think solar is ever going to be much more than a niche. I mean, the niche might get bigger, substantially bigger than it already is, but here's the problem. Uh, what happens when the sun's not shining, which it doesn't for half the day, right? It's just this thing called nighttime. Uh, and then secondly, it's such a low-density energy source. You need a whole lot of solar panels to get up to what, you know, that big thing out in the desert near Las Vegas is 300 megawatts, and it doesn't often even generate that much. It was hugely expensive. Uh, and so the problem is it's not really usable industrial-scale energy unless you can figure out a way to store it and dispatch it. So at the end of the day, the only way solar would ever really work in a big, big way is if you had a breakthrough in battery technology. Ah, the problem with that is, uh, and I, I try to follow this closely because I'm kind of a, a, a engineering geek, is there are genuine physical limits to battery technology. And we may make lithium-ion and things like that better, uh, but not uh, at the scale that you need it for, say, solar power to replace, for example, the coal fleet, just to pick one portion of our electricity supply. Uh, we've already seen that uh, it's very difficult to make a car that will match uh, a gasoline-powered car uh, you can make, uh, you know, the, the Tesla cars really are kind of neat, but they're 120000 bucks, and they only go about 140 miles, which means they're very limited as a practical use for an awful lot of uh, ordinary, uh, everyday Americans who want, need a pickup truck to haul stuff from job site to job site. Uh, so, you know, I, I think this is, um, at the end of the day, it almost seems like it's sun worship come back from the pagan times. Um, and, you know, I, I, finally, I'm all for these guys if they would just uh, uh, do it on a straight-up competitive basis instead of demanding huge subsidies. It's always funny how these people say, oh, we're all for competing, but we have to have subsidies to do it, which means they can't really compete, of course. 
Right, and even 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 if this notion of grid parity, I hate because it, it treats reliables yeah. and unreliables at the same price as equally useful, which I just think of as you know in, in my company, uh, it's it's very different. You know, if I pay somebody, somebody costs me fifteen dollars an hour, I know he's coming in forty hours a week, versus somebody who's coming in twelve hours a week, and I don't don't know when he's coming. Those are that's not employee right. parity. Uh, that, right, right, right. They, they want to be free riders, really, is the way I try and turn that argument around, because everybody wants to have solar power at grid parity, also uh, typically wants to remain connected to the grid uh, for, you know, nighttime and uh, when the sun isn't shining and so forth, but they don't want to pay to uh, their share of, up, of keeping the grid up or of keeping up the base load that they want in reserve. So it's not really even grid parity when you break out all the numbers, but that's one of the games that goes on here is disguising all that. Yeah, so that's that's what I wanted to ask about next in terms of just how the dis, the disguising works. How is it that that you get these numbers that are so misrepresentative of the situation? Because they'll say, well, solar's cheaper than coal, and it's going to be cheaper than gas soon. Yeah, well, boy, one problem is the math does get kind of complicated, and it is related to the fact that the electric utility industry, which has been regulated for almost a hundred years now. It's just a god-awful mess, and, and I tend not to like the electric utilities a lot because they, they are regulated monopolies, and they've been happy with regulation for decades. And that means uh, you know they're willing to go along with some of this nonsense as long as it doesn't cost them too much money. And in fact, they like to do PR about all the solar they're doing and all the windmills they're plugging in, uh, even though they'll always privately tell you that this can't be scaled up and that they're going to have to have gas and coal and nuclear and everything else for a very long time. Uh, but, it, you know, they, the point is they actually almost collaborate with the other side on this, and they, they play a double game that I find very frustrating. But, boy, the numbers are really tricky because, uh, you know, even your utility bill is not really very transparent. Yeah, I had a, an article that I published on Medium, I guess, wow, it's almost, I'm just thinking, book came out, A Moral Case came out November 13th last year, that's when it was published, almost a year ago now. The, uh, the, it was called Apple's Energy Accounting Fraud. And it just talks about the, the fraudulent claim when people say, well, we're 100% renewable or really 100% unreliable. And it's just they plug, into right. a, they plug into a grid and they pay people for the credits so that they can act as if they, as if they got all their energy from the sun, which I said is like kind of the equivalent of, you know, you go on a, you know, you go on a cruise line or something like that and then you stick some, some sails on it and then you basically get the other passengers <laughs> to agree that, well, you were powered by the sails. Right, and that's right. They yeah, were just powered I, I, by that, the engine. Right. Now, when I hear that story about, I think it was Apple and Texas said they were going to be 100% wind-powered or something, and the first question I ask is, does that mean you're going to be completely disconnected from the electricity grid? And, of course, the answer is always mumble, mumble, no, right? Uh, or or a, a, a similar example to this was uh, a few months ago, I think it was back in February, Burlington, Vermont, which, you know, that's your first clue. It's Burlington, Vermont, uh, right, a little socialist paradise that gave us Bernie Sanders, uh, they announced proudly that they were now getting their uh, energy from 100% renewable sources. And that's the way it was reported in the media. And I was on a panel back in Pittsburgh, and someone said, ah, you know, there, there's zero carbon uh, and, uh, uh, you know, 100% renewable energy in Burlington. And I raised my hand and said, do you mean no one there drives a car anymore? Does no one have a gas stove or gas furnace in their house? Uh, there are no trucks coming in and out of Burlington hauling their groceries and supplies. Wow, that is a miracle. Well, of course, when you put it that way, people realize you're only talking about electricity. Uh, some of it, by the way, in Burlington comes from hydropower, which is politically incorrect or, or environmentally incorrect, right? We don't want dams anymore. 
Uh, so it, you know, it's one fraud after another on, on uh, this whole whole domain that you follow. Yeah, and the right. I mean, it's a renewable is just this this complete mess of a term because it's really <laughs> used to it's really used to lionize the unreliables. It's it's. I mean, as a there's no manufacturing process as such that's renewable that just sort of automatically replenishes every element of the manufacturing process. I mean, why you can say fossil fuels are renewable, A, because they naturally renew just at a slower rate than we use them, uh, and B, well, certain parts of the process are not going to run out. Like, you know, we're not running out of oxygen. That's a part of combustion. So is that a renewable? Pro so it's <laughs> the whole thing is just is in nonsense. And I, I take it back to what you said about sun worship, I think that is is really it in the sense of living in harmony with the sun, living in harmony with nature is is the closest thing to the ideal of uh, unaltered nature, which, you know, for the Greens, that's that's the ideal, you know, versus humanists whose ideal is human beings living really, really well, uh, which is obviously not going to happen if we're forced to, you know, forced to use the worst technologies and, and abandon the best technologies whereas if as you mentioned if we have a free market which is what we're for not any particular energy source then we'll have good results and that gets to some of the other benefits uh, domestically so talk about the situation just with uh, employment and jobs which obviously has gotten worse in some ways when uh, at least for for oil related jobs when the price of oil has gone down but I don't think most people who are outside North Dakota or Texas have a sense of how much this revolution has meant to individuals who can find far more productive employment than they once could. Well, oh, this is very important. I mean, uh, you've had a lot of industries that were either going to relocate overseas or had already done so, have changed their plans and come back to the U.S. Uh, you know, Dow Chemical was going to relocate major facilities in the Persian Gulf because uh, that's where they thought they would have uh, affordable natural gas. Well, they changed those plans and they're expanding here in the United States. So it's not just the employment boom in the energy industry itself, um, uh, but it's also uh, collateral industries that benefit from lower energy prices and make our manufacturing more competitive. So the bitter irony here, in my mind, is that but for the fracking boom and the associated conventional energy boom, I think Barack Obama might not have been reelected in 2012. I mean, it, it kept the economy or, or, you know, it contributed more than any other sector to the revival of the economy, such as it's been since the crash of 2008, 2009. Uh, and, uh, you know, if the, 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 as I say, if the Greens had had their way, we would still be at 8, 9, 10% unemployment today. And that, uh, I think, would, would not have spelled reelection for Obama, oddly enough. So, what, what are, the, so I, I will often describe the energy industry is the industry that powers every other industry to to indicate the causality there. Thus, if the price of energy goes up and the availability goes down, then that makes every other industry less productive, and you know, vice versa. If the price goes down and availability goes up, it becomes more productive. Uh, what are some other examples? You mentioned uh, Dow Chemical, but uh, any other industries or, or specific companies that come to mind? Uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know of, of specific companies off the top of my head. I mean, I used to keep a file on these things, and I forget. But there have been, you know, manufacturers. I didn't expanded. think you forgot about um, stuff. I thought, I thought. Yeah, I know it's well. I do. It's, you know, I'm getting old now. But, um, uh, but no, you've you heard stories out of places like Ohio and Michigan of companies that uh, expanded or thought they might close down, but are now roaring again. And and a few companies that have brought back um, operations from overseas. In part because energy costs, especially in Europe, are being driven up by really bad tax and energy policies, and you know here suddenly we're a lot more competitive. Yeah, it's just it's just remarkable. Well, 
let, let's say that we have a, a better president, and although this is not a political show, I think we can be pretty sure that a Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton in an energy context is not going to be a better president or at least a, a good president. Uh, what's, what's the remaining opportunity? Because you mentioned, for example, that that most of the development has been on private land, and we know that on, on federally controlled lands there, there's massive opportunity. So give us a sense of of the the production opportunity that we have if we start to liberate some of the areas that are now uh, controlled or restricted. Yeah, gosh, there was a, a couple of studies of this by the U.S. Geological Survey and I think the Department of Energy that suggested that the amount of hydrocarbon energy available in public lands is, is some astronomical figure, right? It would actually make the U.S. the largest uh, uh, give us the largest energy reserves in the world, right? Larger than Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. Uh, so that's a no-brainer. Uh, the second thing, of course, is we got to build that darn Keystone pipeline. Uh, I think even Hillary Clinton knows that, uh, and and the new left-wing government they've uh, elected in Canada under Justin Trudeau, they're still for the pipeline. And you know, the pipeline uh, is not so much important for new supply, but what it does allow you is more diversification of the whole supply chain and refining. And that's been lost in the shuffle here because people have been arguing about oh. Building the pipeline would only be a few thousand temporary jobs and then only a few maintenance jobs after it's built. Uh, but that it completely leaves out the fact that uh, you know a million barrels a day of new supply going into our refining network just opens up all kinds of flexibility and increases the responsiveness of the marketplace. Uh, and uh, I'll give you one really important example of why that uh, is a useful thing to do. Uh, you know, we have these wild swings in gasoline prices, especially in crazy states like California. Uh, and part of that is because of all the goofy boutique gasoline requirements and also the tight constraints on uh, refinery capacity. You know, you hear refineries are always switching from summer to winter blends and uh, to home heating oil in the northeast, and they're always trying to balance these things very finely. Uh, and I, I think having a, you know new supply and a pipeline from Canada uh, just improves that all across the board in ways that um, a lot of people don't appreciate. I hate the claim about it's bad because it doesn't create enough jobs. Because jobs is this tricky issue because it, right. creating a job, if it's a productive job, is a virtue, which is what we've been talking about with the domestic oil and gas industry and then the, the other industries that are becoming more productive uh, because of it, because you know, their overall cost of production declines because their energy cost declines, and thus the, a worker can become part of a productive process who couldn't be before. So that's, that's all amazing, and it's good for everyone to have a productive job, but it's not good. But the more productive job, the better, which means if you can only have a couple of individuals who are transporting a million barrels of oil a day, that's unbelievable. That should be, cel a, that, that should right. be celebrated, not like, that, oh, the, let's find right. a million parasites to hang on to the pipeline all day. Yeah, no, that's right. There's, uh, uh, and, and I was maybe a little bit uh, sloppy in the way I formulated it. Uh, the, the economic literacy about job creation uh, it goes along with the basic energy illiteracy of this field, right? Um, we often hear that, oh, you know, uh, wind power creates a whole lot of jobs. And, you know, I always, uh, I always patiently try to explain to people that's really a bad thing, in fact, right? I mean, um, one way to try to illustrate this to people, although they're often resistant, is, you know, a million dollars will create 30 jobs in one business, but five jobs in another business. Which one is actually the better business to invest in? Well, the 30 jobs would be McDonald's. I mean, those are fine jobs for entry-level people, as, you know, teenagers and such, uh, but they're lower-wage jobs, right? Uh, the high-productivity jobs, as you point out, that would be the million dollars invested that creates five jobs. Well, 
so the, the what we often hear about uh, you know wind and solar creating all these green jobs has it exactly backwards. They tend to be lower wage jobs, uh, lower skill jobs, and very low productivity jobs. But boy, try getting that across these days to people. They're they're uh, they're very uh, far into the drinking the Kool Aid of just creating jobs for jobs' sake. Yeah, I'm trying to think about the right terminology because as you said that, I just I'm starting to really dislike the term job creation because the job yeah. of a job is creation. It's not to the job of a business is not to create uh, jobs. I'm using jobs way too many too many times. But right. but that is so you can say well this because it's really that it, something requires jobs and that's only legitimate if it's a productive enterprise so i feel like at least in the case of these these parasitical industries it's that they take all these jobs and, and they were it's it but it's part of their broader resource requirement they require too many resources for too little benefit and that means they require too much human talent for too little benefit so i, I wonder if you have off the top of your head or we can think about it later just good terminology for 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 capturing that the truths there you know, I, I don't, but uh, I do like to tell Milton Friedman's, uh, one of my favorite Milton Friedman stories. And it's from back in the, uh, I think the late 1940s when, we, when he went over to Europe for the first Montpellier Society meeting. And they're driving through devastated Germany, right? And Germany was just a wreck for 10 years after the war. And he saw a whole field of people digging a foundation for a building with shovels. And Friedman asked his host, a you know, German government official, well, why don't you use uh, steam shovels or mechanized equipment? It's a lot more productive. And the answer was, oh, but we want to create jobs. So, of course, what Friedman said was, oh, well, in that case, why don't you give everybody spoons? You have a lot more jobs, right? That's the economic logic uh, behind green jobs. Yeah, no, that, that I, I, I don't think anyone <laughs> who has heard that forgets that, that <laughs> right. point because it's just, it's just so uh, inarguable. I think the only thing that, that makes it tricky, well, like, to those who have any economics at all, is just that in a you know in a highly controlled economy like ours in which is all sorts of distortions and wealth transfers in, in both directions i'd say that it's it's you do have a decline in the job opportunities in the society and so it's more legitimate for someone to say i can't find a job and so it, it can seem like what what's going wrong and the system isn't working it can be hard for people to trace well what all the distortions going on and then but then you can observe hey we when we accidentally and you made the point, accidentally liberated this area of oil and gas production. You know, we slipped one by the goalie because Obama didn't know that the tyranny of oil was going to occur with shale rock. Uh, we see this amazing set of, of job opportunities. So, yeah, I don't have the per perfect words, but it's something like productive job opportunities. Because with my own business, I'm, well, listeners might send me a bunch of random emails, but for instance, I'm looking for a couple of positions right now. I don't think of it as I'm creating jobs. I think of it as as we want to improve the company, and we you know we need someone to create uh, value. Right, right. Well, I but I think uh, what I was thinking of at the beginning of your comment was you know the the loss of skilled jobs or unskilled high wage jobs. You know, it used to be you get out of of high school and you could go to work as an auto worker and make a really good living. And there's fewer of those jobs, is what the claim is. And I think that's true. On the other hand. Think again about the energy boom. It's not just the high-skilled engineers who've done very well and found new opportunities, but it's the truck drivers. It's uh, all the collateral businesses. You know, you can uh, get right out of high school and command a six-figure income as a, a truck driver in North Dakota these days, 
where, by the way, there's no there's no controversy about raising the minimum wage in North Dakota because the fast food restaurants all pay you know sixteen seventeen dollars an hour to start because they're short of labor. Well, that's what happens when you have a booming and productive sector. Uh, it creates lots and lots of job opportunities and rising wages everywhere. So. Uh, you know, again, it's talk about looking a gift horse in the mouth. The one sector of the economy that has provided high wages uh, for lots and lots of unskilled people is the one that liberals hate the most. Uh, yeah, and, and I never tire of reminding people that in 2007, candidate Obama ran on ending the tyranny of oil as one of his most noble goals. That and that would help him stop the rising uh, of the seas, which I don't know, which I guess, yeah, they had risen 400 feet uh, without us emitting CO2 in the last 20,000 years. So I guess he thought he could be like, I don't know, some sort of diff Moses in a different direction. Yeah, he, he, he thinks he can do a lot of things. <laughs> well, I think people have been a bit, uh, have realized that his, his powers to uh, to control things in, in a favorable way are less than they might have thought when he ran on the uh, deep philosophy of hope and change. Yes, right, uh -huh. right. So in terms of another area of opportunity, there's the whole realm of exports. It's, it's not as big an issue in, in many people's minds, but certainly in the industry right now, the, the issue of crude oil exports is huge. But there's also the issue of coal exports, and then there's the issue of natural gas exports. And all of these are very, very restricted. Of course, in the case of crude oil, it's, there's, there's an effective ban. Uh, talk about the, the opportunities to liberate exports and what that could do. Well, I think uh, I think that's fairly straightforward, old classic free trade theory and comparative advantage. I think our refining industry is among the best in the world. I mean, I, other other um, countries in the world are good at it too. But there's no reason we shouldn't be exporting refined products and even certain grades of oil that may be more suitable for other markets in the world. And you know, we we put this export ban in what 40 years ago now in a fit of madness over the first so-called energy crisis and. Now, I think Congress has taken the first step to lift the ban, although there's probably lots of strings involved. And, of course, the trade-off was they've extended the, um, as I understand it, the production tax credit for wind power, which otherwise might have phased out. I think they're extending all the subsidies for ethanol. And so, you know, these days, the way politics works, we can't even get a good thing without perpetuating more of the bad stuff. Yeah, I, I'm not sure whether, I don't know. The, the, the crude oil ban is so... I mean, so bad. I mean, that other stuff is. And what I always worry about is is the outright restrictions, because which are which occur uh, in the form of mandates at the level they start to mandate things. So that that once you get from so the subsidies are one thing, which are are obviously really bad. But then you start to get into mandate, which means that you start forcing out the existing things, and then you get into what the what the UN talks about, what they talk about at Paris, which is outright restrictions and bans, or they'll call them targets, but the only way to achieve the target <laughs> is by forcibly preventing people. So what do you see uh, in, in the landscape going forward that's, that's the biggest threat to uh, energy prices and availability? Well, I think it's clear that it's climate mania. And, uh, you know, I actually... Uh, that's a good uh, term, by the way. Yeah, mania, right. Um, I actually think this uh, Paris Treaty that we're almost certain to get here in another six or eight weeks, I think it, there's going to be a lot of hoopla about it. I actually think it won't mean very much. Well, I'll put it this way. Uh, I've been saying for a while that what we're building towards is the climate diplomacy equivalent of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, 
If you remember that, <laughs> yeah. right? If you remember that from high school, it was the treaty that said we're no longer going to wage aggressive war. Uh, and, uh, you know, Japan, Imperial Japan and Germany signed that treaty. Fat lot of good that did. Problem was it had no enforcement mechanism. There was no, it wasn't a real treaty, right? It was just a feel-good note. And what you hear is that the Paris Treaty, if they actually get one, I think they will, but, it, it, you know, the um, I think India may drag its feet. I hope they do. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of feel-good rhetoric saying, we all pledge to cut our carbon emissions by, you know, 50% by some year. But there's be no real teeth in that. So then it will be up to individual countries as to whether they want to live up to these things. And I can't imagine that going very far for all the same reasons that China and India want to grow. Uh, European nations are already trying to back away from this at the margins, or even more than at the margins. They just don't want to admit it publicly. Uh, you know, Germany is, uh, uh, understands its problem with high energy prices, and Britain's trying to backtrack. Um, and so I think there are real-world limits to all this. Uh, meanwhile, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do, apparently, this clean power plan for the EPA. Uh, and then uh, the big thing to look out for is there's this great lust for a carbon tax, uh, which wouldn't constrain energy production directly, uh, but it wouldn't make energy more expensive if we get it. Uh, I think it's a, uh, the politics against it are very strong, uh, but you never know what might happen in three or four years as part of some grand budget deal. Uh, so I think that's something to watch out for. One thing about the the carbon tax or CO2 tax is that I think it it reflects the broader cynicism and opportunism that's involved in exploiting the, the climate mania, as we'll now call it, in, in the following sense. And this goes, this integrates a couple of points that came up, including the non-scalability of solar. Solar, the appeal of solar and wind and the reason to use them is not, to, or to allegedly use them, is not so that they can occupy 5% of electricity generation. The idea is that we have this massive addiction to fossil fuels that needs to be overwhelmingly replaced by these. So when you're evaluating how their progress and their prospects, it's from the standpoint of, are these truly scalable replacements on, that, on the order of over 50% of the U.S. Uh, energy production and then uh, the world's energy production? And the answer is no. And part of what a one one way to get at that as well is to look at a, a tax on CO2 and ask yourself, well, what level would it have to be to, as Bill McKibben would say, keep 80% of fossil fuels in the ground? Like, it would have to be insanely astronomical to somehow force us to try to build windmills with windmills and solar panels. I mean, it's unimaginable. I mean, and, and to replace mobile fuel, it's just, there's no, it, it's just, so what do they do? They talk about, oh, a modest carbon tax so that it seems reasonable. But then it doesn't accomplish the goal on its own terms. And the same thing is true for all of these half-assed uh, attempts and implementations of Kyoto or the Paris thing. And so all this right. means is that in practice, that all of these people use it as a racket that's not even solving the problem on their terms. Now, I'm I'm, I'd rather they use it as a racket and fail than do it sincerely <laughs> and succeed. But nevertheless, people should realize that there is not a real interest in solving the problem on their own terms. And of course, we already know that because they oppose nuclear and hydro, which would be the obvious means of getting at the problem. They oppose, oppose fracking, which you know has lower CO2 emissions than uh, the average energy production in the world. So I just wanted to point out to people that this is such uh, that there is just a complete uh, racket here. And the real question in our minds should be, how do we produce energy abundance uh, around the world? And if somebody is talking about restricting fossil fuels, do they care about energy abundance? And the answer is no. And I, they don't care even about climate mania. They just care about yeah. power. 
Oh, that's right. I think uh, authoritarianism is uh, one of the chief attractions of this issue for people on the left. Uh, and and you know, to the extent that you believe in, uh, I'll put it this way, the, the delicious irony and perverse irony of this issue is that the more you believe in catastrophic climate change, the more unserious all these ideas like a carbon tax are. Uh, and, and, and to the extent that you actually believe in solar and wind are going to save us uh, or batteries are going to save us, it's an interesting thought experiment, or not a thought experiment, get out a piece of paper and a calculator and do some real work on this. The materials requirements to replace just half of our fossil fuels uh, with things like uh, batteries, uh, solar panels, and windmills are astronomical. And, and so an environmentalist is actually going to support the uh, 10x, at least, expansion in, in uh, mineral mining that we required around the world to build all this. I'm not even sure, by the way, there, there is that much lithium in the earth to build all the lithium batteries you'd need to make this actually work. Uh, and, uh, and no one ever does that, by the way. Um, uh, I think it's kind of interesting that we don't like to be dependent on Middle Eastern oil. Uh, but right now, I think Bolivia is the leading supplier of lithium in the world. And they're a country that right now is unfriendly to us. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, it, it, all these things uh, double back on, the, on themselves pretty fast in ways that, uh, to a detached observer, become almost amusing. Yeah, and I, th I think Mark Mills said this, but... Uh, whether he said it or not, I'll give him credit if it's right, and, and if it's wrong, I'll give myself non-credit. But the, the, he made the point, I think, that, that the, since you can't build a windmill with a windmill or a solar panel with a solar panel, this is, what they're talking about uh. is the greatest fossil-fueled project in human history in terms of, right. in terms of building it. And there's, I hate to go on just a quick rant. I hate it when Elon Musk or others talk about oh, well, the, the solar panels wouldn't take up that much space. And then they'll say, well, it's only some small percentage of the total square footage in the U.S. Like, look at the U.S. from a map. Do you understand how many giant buildings that's the equivalent of? So you're just talking about the biggest yeah. construction project in human history, all powered by, necessarily powered by a rapid uh, escalation in, in fossil fuel use, as well as all those other things, which you don't, I mean, at least with the fossil fuels, you have some idea that they can scale because they're already at a large scale. But if you're talking about something that's just a niche or novelty industry, uh, and then you're talking about the material requirements for, you know, for, uh, decoupling it. Yeah. People, people, there's just all this bizarre manipulation of economics, such as, oh, economies of scale. So the more lithium <laughs> we produce, the better. Why don't they say that with oil? If we double our production of oil, oil will be cheaper. Oh wait, maybe. Well, this is a, yeah. well, this is another astounding hypocrisy. You know, the um, in the continental U.S., the human footprint from you know houses and buildings are cities and suburbs. It's about five percent of the land area, maybe a little less than that. And depending on which scenario you want to run with, uh, to generate a substantial portion of our electricity, uh, a baseload electricity from solar panels would require at least 5% of the land mass of the United States. And, uh, you know, environmentalists for years have been against suburban sprawl, right, because it gobbles <laughs> up open space and threatens farmland. But now we're going to double the human footprint with solar panels, and this is not going to – and environmentalists are okay with that? Well, it shows you how selective is their uh, indignation about things. Well, they'd say we'll put it on – I mean, their counter to that is, no, we'll just put it on the roof so it won't take up any extra space. That's uh, not enough roof space for all the panels you need. Right. Well, but also, I mean, also, it's not like you just think, think about that for a second. We're talking about the entire group of buildings that have been built. I mean, that have built or lasted, been built or lasted in the entire history of this country. And we're saying, like, here's a new project that's supposedly going to be cost efficient that involves building that much. 
building that much stuff uh, and, or, or going on top of each one and manually installing something. Like that's not an appealing, uh, that's not an appealing prospect and it should just highlight to us how, how beneficial and wonderful it is to have highly dense sources like, uh, well, hydro to a certain extent, uh, fossil fuels, nuclear, where to expand it dramatically, you don't need to completely, uh, you know, pave the land of the U.S. I got nothing against paving things. It's just an issue of, uh, of, of resource requirements. And then, as you mentioned, it's, it's an issue of the insincerity of the other side. And of course, we know it will happen in practice because it already does happen with solar wind is that every single specific project will be opposed, which means there will just be pure nihilism uh, guiding energy destruction. Uh, Right. Well, you know, (laughs) that's the other, uh, another uh, hypocrisy and irony is uh, if wind and solar actually did become practical and scalable and affordable, uh, environmentalists would uh, would oppose it. And in fact, as you know, they already do oppose some wind and uh, solar installations when you have to say run power lines to get the power to where it's needed. Yeah, which is kind of important for the whole, oh, we're going to solve all the problems through distributed power generation. We're going right. to move it from Africa to Europe. My understanding is that requires some power lines. <laughs> some pretty big ones, yes. Yeah, or they just, you know, like Desert Tech, they just talk about. How, you know, I haven't been in this field for that long. It's still, it's still a little bit under a decade. But even I'm, ex- of course, I read the history, but it's it's a little bit different to experience it live. I just still remember when desert tech was floated in front of me as well this is proof that solar is practical and then they never issue an apology and like well we actually completely manipulated you and tried to get you to uh, support destructive policies this was actually a complete uh sham yeah yeah that's right well whenever i hear those things i always say fine go ahead what's stopping you what's stopping them is always the absence of subsidies yeah the lack of your money right right Um, yeah, yeah, environmentalists always think the only unlimited resource in the world is other people's money. <laughs> They're not alone in that, but that is that, that <laughs> right. is that is true. All right, well, so as we wrap up, I think we've uh, gotten lots of great insight from you. Uh, any any final thoughts? And then I want to ask you, mostly for my sake, uh, what you're up to these days, since you've done lots and lots of cool projects like um, Almanac of Environmental Trends. And, and for those, if you just do a search of Steve Hayward, uh, you know, this, this is like almost a polymath here in terms of the different kinds of subjects that he tackles. So first, tell me that, actually. What are, what are you up to these days? Well, I, long story, I've I, I be, I become a college professor again. And so I'm you know, teaching public policy at the Graduate School of Pepperdine. And a lot of that involves old-fashioned political science and, and teaching public policy analysis. I, I do do a course, uh, this will be the second year this next spring, on energy policy for students. And it's very popular. And uh, the main object of the course is to dispel what I call energy romanticism, right? Students especially like to think that we can power the world on unicorn flop sweat and sunbeams and you know every other gimmick you hear about. And it's very sobering for them to spend a whole semester learning in detail how the sector actually works. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, that's my main thing in energy these days. Uh, I am uh, uh, slowly building up to doing a new edition of my Almanac of Environmental Trends, probably for not next year but the year after. Um, probably with a, uh, an academic press this time and uh, with a strategy of trying to get it into the college marketplace. Uh, there are some good books on energy and environment, but I think uh, there's room for another one that, uh, that puts especially basic environmental trends in a broader context. And it hasn't been done for a while, uh, I discovered. Um, and so I'm going to revive that whole project again. 
Well, that's great that that you're having that you're getting all those students exposed to to better ideas and and facts about it. And it would be great. I mean, it would be great if if students got that. I can only imagine what my experience at Duke would have been like had other students got exposure to any good information. I, I at least had some exposure just from you know being a free marketer uh, by the time I was a freshman. But yeah, th- so that's. That's terrific. Okay, any any final thoughts on uh, America's energy opportunities that you think listeners should know? Uh, well, I, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if I'm uh, predicting the future. I guess what I'd say is uh, people should be happy about how this has unfolded uh, for this reason. Despite all of the attempts of the environmental left and all the blundering and stupidity that comes out of Washington, we still got this energy revolution. I mean, it shows you that the marketplace is uh, pretty robust and pretty strong, I uh, should always be worried about the political interventions that are always bad. But my gosh, what an amazing thing that this happened. And uh, it should give us confidence in the ingenuity of, of individual human beings and the marketplace. Uh, generally, we'll get the upper hand over the politicians unless you get a real honest-to-God tyranny. You know, our Constitution is badly eroded and in danger in some ways, but we still have enough of it uh, that we have a corner to fight from. And I think there's this interesting balance of... of- optimism and vigilance at the same time because it's to enjoy to enjoy and and predict good things and enjoy the present and predict good things in the future i think is warranted but at the same time if we're not really vigilant about the current things then they'll at least become worse and may become really bad and i think often people have it in their mind that it's either the complete dream or the complete nightmare whereas often (laughs) right when you fight for the dream you move yourself toward the dream. And if you fail to fight the nightmare, you get moved more quickly uh, toward the nightmare. So uh, anyway, I hope, I hope uh, well, not I hope, uh, I'm grateful to you for your ongoing work that I've learned from and other people will learn from. Where can people see your work online? Uh, the best place to read me actually is the blog I write at almost every day. It's called powerlineblog.com. It's all one word, powerlineblog. It's me and three other uh, lawyers actually. Um, we're the folks uh, who, it wasn't me, it was, one, it was Scott Johnson, really. We're the folks who ended Dan Rather's career at CBS News back in 2004 by being the first to expose that he was using phony documents in his attack on George W. Bush's National Guard Service. And I write a lot of energy and environment on that site. Uh, one, one thing I do, and I, I gave out one this morning, uh, I give a green weenie award to the silliest environmental news of the week. It's not always every week, but um, uh, this week I've got one up about how the Department of Energy is encouraging kids to go dressed up for Halloween as solar panels. Uh, if ever there was better reason to get rid of the Department of Energy, that may be the showtopper. Is it because we could we should be scared of depending on them? Is that the idea? Well, no, that's actually no, that's actually a pretty good point. I said if someone showed up at my doorstep dressed as Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, I might generally be frightened. <laughs> God, what a propaganda! <laughs> what a propaganda agency uh, that is! Uh, wow. Well, right. um, okay. Well, great. Yeah, Power, Powerline has awesome stuff, so we'll link to it. Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks again to Steve Hayward for being on the show. Usual reminders. To learn more about our upcoming energy plan slash campaign, make sure you're on the newsletter. Go to industrialprogress.com. I believe that I Love Fossil Fuels t-shirts are more readily visible there also, but if if they're not, you can go to ilovefossilfuels.com 
Ted Cruz just praised a a supporter of ours, Ben Nelson, for wearing one. So I think uh, those have been uh, those have been picked up by a lot of people lately. So hopefully we'll be seeing those more. If you go to an event, certainly make sure to get your I Love Fossil Fuels shirt, particularly in in green. I'm not sure. Oh, on the, on that site you can get them in any in any color. When we sell them, uh, when we used to sell them on our own, we I think for a while we just had green because you just gotta love the green I Love Fossil Fuels shirt. All right, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, to some extent Instagram. The basic categories are there's the Alex Epstein page, there's the I Love Fossil Fuels page, the I Love Nuclear page, and the Center for Industrial Progress page. So make sure to keep up. Lots and lots of stuff going on. I've been on the road uh, probably more than ever this this last month or two recently you can see uh, on our webpage and on our Facebook I did an event that was hosted by Alex Trebek it was really fun to be introduced by him and then and then to have him comment on my presentation at the end I also got to ride in a plane with him for an hour or two which was fun to talk with him about uh, fossil fuels and and environmental issues I won't divulge the contents of that conversation but it was it was I'd say a really interesting discussion and all kinds of other stuff uh, coming along. So I think that is it. Next week we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.